Hello and welcome to this edition of Stump Mike. I'm your host, Andrew McGlashan, and we are joined today by Alex Malcolm and Inesha Ghosh as we look back on a terrific one-day series between Australia and India and ahead to the pink ball test on the Gold Coast, which begins on Thursday. Australia's world record streak is over, halted it's an incredible 26 matches dating back to 2018. The ODI series ended 2-1 in Australia's favour, but it could easily have been the other way around. A marginal no-ball call for height, a key moment in the extraordinary finish of the second game in the series. All in all, after a one-sided contest in the first game, which had us all a little concerned about what could follow um, over the next few games, this was some of the most absorbing one-day cricket you could have wished to see. Anesha, good to see you. I'll come to you first, as it was India that clawed their way back into the series at the end there. One of the good things, of course, about the multi-format nature of this series is that the final ODI had far more relevance than might have otherwise been the case. And how important was it for India to get over the line there, especially what happened the game before? The simple fact that there is a one-off pink ball test to be played that's going to be followed by three T20Is. The relevance of the remainder of 10 points are to be seen through the prism of this victory as Chudan Goswami, the player of the match, who hit the winning run and also set them up for the victory with that 3-4, said after the third ODI on Sunday that for them it was important to get a semblance of momentum going their way ahead of the pink ball test, which remains an absolutely unknown proposition for them. And also to recover from that heartbreaking loss that they faced on Friday in the second ODI, which was a day-night fixture, that hurt them real bad. You could tell that from the little huddle that the India group group made after Australia's innings in the third ODI. You know, they were shoddy on the field. They had some sitters dropped, you know, some awful misfields, which cost them at least 15 runs. But after India came back to the boundary rope and were about to make their way into the dressing room, Ramesh Babar made sure, and it was caught very well by the broadcast team, he got the entire team to huddle around him and there was a bit of a pep talk that happened and you could tell he wanted to galvanize the 11 players and make sure that those 264 runs that they had to chase do not seem as daunting as it would have otherwise not to forget because of the context of that heartbreaking last ball defeat two nights ago. We'll break down some of the individual performances and players in a moment, but Alex, I'll come to you now. The only opposition we'd seen Australia play over the previous year was New Zealand in the six ODIs. In those two series, it's got to say Australia were pretty comfortable and rarely pushed by a New Zealand side that were struggling. What did you make of them over these three matches? Did you see some rust? Did you see some development? Did you actually see some weaknesses that we may not have seen over the last year or so? I was very surprised by how they performed in that last game, the third game. It looked as if they would just continue to roll on after the performance in game one, where they were completely dominant with both bat and ball. But I I agree with your summation in the intro, Nasha. I actually feel they're very, very fortunate to be 2-1 up in games and 4-2 up in points because they should not have won game two and they, they were thoroughly outplayed in game three. There were some really concerning things, actually, in terms of just rust and and general um, malaise that you wouldn't see from a side that's been so thoroughly professional over 26 matches. I just wanted to take you through a few things that caught my eye. I mean, India really allowed Australia to score 264 in that last game. It wasn't a case of Australia being the better batting team in that in that effort. I thought they bowled really well, the India bowlers, but they, they dropped Mooney twice on 29 and 38. They dropped Talia McGrath on 20 and she made 47. Kerry was dropped... Uh, by Verma, and Verma had a chance actually to take Gardner on the fence um, during her half century, 
And then Australia, they've, I ran through the, the fielding performance. That was as bad a fielding performance as I've seen in the whole street, Nasher, and I'm, I'm sure you would agree. So Verma could have been out twice in Perry's second over, third over the match. You made two edges that didn't go to hand and possibly one of those should have been taken. She was dropped by Molyneux on 19, dropped by Sutherland on 45, a tough chance. Uh, Yastika Badia was dropped uh, a tough chance at mid-off on, or mid-on on 39. But Snee Rana, who played one of the great cameos in one-day cricket, she was dropped on 10, 11, caught off a no-ball on 16, and should have been run out on 3, 5, and 12. And Deepthi Sharma had a, a chance to be run out on 10 and Lanning missed. And they bowled 31 wides. 12 of those were through bonus wides, basically, because they were five wides. So 19 extra deliveries. It was a very, very untidy performance by Australia. And they are very lucky to be 4-2 uh, up in the series. And, and maybe I think it, it looked to me like just backing up two days after that second game and having to play three quick games in succession, having spent that time in quarantine and for a lot of them having spent a lot of months in lockdown, they, they just look rusty and um, they really need to to sharpen things up over what they've only got four days or three days, basically, of preparation uh, heading into the test match. And they've obviously got all these injury concerns. So they were the things that caught my eye. I was very surprised and I've been impressed by the way India's played so far. I just want to pick up on a couple of the points you mentioned there. The wides, the inconsistency in the bowling, that the tone tended to be set by Elise Perry and the debate discussion on Elise Perry's bowling goes back basically to the point of her really bad injury in the World T20 when she did the hamstring. Uh, then obviously COVID struck, so everyone had a lot of time on the sidelines. She didn't get a lot of bowling last year. Felt like, whether through tactics or whether through not trusting her, I mean, there were some pressure situations in those last two games, particularly where perhaps Elise Perry at her best, um, you would be seeing, thinking Meg Lanning would throw the ball to her. That didn't happen. Where do you see, having watched these three games, where do you see Elise Perry's bowling? Do you think there might be something slightly longer term there? I think they would be concerned. Uh, I, I spoke to someone today, actually, about uh, her action. I, I'm surprised that maybe someone like Ben Sawyer, who she's worked with a lot, uh, a bowling coach and coach at the Sydney Sixers, hasn't picked up on what the particular issues are bowling to the left hand. We heard Elisa Healy mention on Mike yesterday that there's a, there's a particular thing with her action uh, to left-handers where she just gets a lot more shape and, and her direction, obviously, swing the ball down the leg side. I spoke to a, a, a male coach who, who works with um, the men's domestic teams here and, and a, a coach in the IPL, and he was talking about a particular player he has who's got the opposite. He runs from quite wide of the crease and can tend to push the ball down the leg side. It can happen with these side-on bowlers and their mechanics can get out a little bit, and it just looks that way for Elise Perry. And she just looks a little bit out of rhythm, a little bit out of sorts, and, and maybe coming off that injury and then not having many games to lead in, no sort of domestic cricket to sort of feel her way back in is, is affecting her a little bit. And certainly from a bowling and batting point of view, for as good as she's been for a long period of time, she is a confidence player. She's always been someone who's performed um, consistently well after getting on a bit of a run. She's never one who's necessarily come in cold and, and performed straight away without a lot of cricket under her belt. So she's someone who likes to hit a lot of balls. She's someone who likes to, to train hard, do a lot of physical prep, and, and maybe that's a big part of it. So it will be interesting to see whether the less sort of, I won't say pressurised scenario, but the more lenient arena of the test match in terms of the wide calls, in terms of being mm. able to set a batter up, whether that allows her to perhaps 
ease her way into the game. We know, I mean, her record across all formats is astonishing. Her, her test record, though, average of 78 with the bat and 18 with the ball is is just out of this world. So it'll be interesting to see whether she can settle back into that format. And Anesha, I just want to come back to you with the next Aussie player I just want to pick out. I mean, we saw uh, an incredible inch by Beth Mooney in that second match. I mean, partly it showed Australia's versatility. Rachel Haynes was injured. They were able to just put Beth Mooney up the top and she produces one of the great run chase innings that I think any of us will have seen it in one day cricket. Just watching that, what, what stood out to you about the way she was able to marshal that chase from 52 for four? There was this one shot, a video of which the Cricket Australia account, I think, posted on Twitter of her uh, doing a reverse scoop. It came at a clutch moment in that particular innings. Beth Mooney went on to say after match, she was struggling to find the scoring areas because suddenly you could see Mithali Raj was making wise calls in terms of field placements. And for a short-lived patch, the bowlers were bowling dots. So the pressure was piling on and suddenly to release that pressure that had built on, Beth Mooney pulls out that scoop. So... For her to have brought out that WBBL energy into an ODI chase, the inventiveness that has been hallmark of her so many rescue acts for the Brisbane Heat and for the Australian T20 side. I remember tweeting about this as well, that until about 8.23 a.m. India Standard Time on Sunday, Beth Mooney had not been able to be got out by an Indian attack since she started batting in the T20 World Cup uh, final last year. She came into the series with uh, what seemed like a form of a life, a form she has carried through the best part of the past uh, two and a half years. It's the inventiveness and the composure, the leadership that was on view because she knew that while she had the help of uh, Atalia Magra and uh, the Australian batting lineup bats as deep as uh, any batting lineup possibly can in the world. The onus was on her to put her hand up and make sure that she gets her side over the line and takes them deep into the chase because this is an Indian fielding unit which doesn't really do well under pressure. Hat tip to Anya Shopsol, 23rd July 2017. So ever since that ODI World Cup final, things have really gone custard to borrow a phrase from Matthew Mott himself for the Indian bowling attack under pressure and also their lower order when it comes to chasing. So kudos to Beth Mooney to actually backing herself with the help of Nicola Carey, of course, who played a superb cameo. Uh, well done to WB well for putting in place the kind of setup they have in the domestic setup, which allows the likes of Nicola Carey or Beth Mooney to flourish the way they did under pressure in front of about a 1,500 strong crowd. That's what we got to learn uh, much later, that they had a strong crowd support, Indians and Australians alike. It's not easy to perform under that kind of pressure, but Beth Mooney has done that at the MCG. So what was 1,500 people after all? One of the great things about this series through injury rotation is we're getting to see a number of uh, new and less experienced uh, players we've touched on two experienced players in that last little chat Elise Perry and Beth Mooney but I just want to run over some of the players who we're seeing maybe not for the first time but are getting their first decent run in international cricket I'll start with the uh, Australians I mean I might not have them all in this list but we've seen Darcy Brown with Hannah Darlington Stella Campbell, um, Annabelle Sutherland came back into the side, Tali McGuire who you mentioned, Anesha. Australia's depth is is world class. It's much wanted. It's. Do you think longer term that this will be a very valuable experience for Australia, getting the chance that isn't always doesn't always seem easy in this Australian team to find space for these players. They've now had to bring in four or five. Do you think this will be a benefit for them longer term? I think it will. I agree with that, Nasha. One of the difficulties over this period and, and over the period of Australia's sustained success, if you go back to the 2018 T20 World Cup title, they've had a generational group that, that has played a lot of cricket 
together and it's been a very difficult team to break into and getting these youngs they have veterans there as well to help guide them through is a great opportunity uh so i've been very impressed i thought darcy brown bought beautifully in the first game uh stella campbell impressed plenty in in game number three and talia mcgrath just looks a ready-made international player she's she's a superb cricketer with both bat and ball and a really good fielder as well so yeah there's uh, a lot to like about this australian group and in terms of developing for the future, they're just allowing these players to come in with the the veterans around them to be able to work their way through these difficult situations. And you're only going to learn by being in the heat of the moment and, and being under pressure. And they'll probably learn more. Someone like Stella Campbell might learn more from, from dealing with a loss and bowling under pressure yesterday than maybe a Darcy Brown would from dominating a game in game one. They're in a really good space and, and there's a lot of good cricketers coming through in Australia, but I have been really impressed with some of the Indian youngsters as well. Uh, we'll come on to those names in a sec. I just want to sort of follow up on Natalia McGraw. I think she's quite an interesting story because she had her first taste of international cricket back in 2016. She played in the 2017 Ashes. She's already played a test match, so she may get a second cap this week. I think that's an insight into how the Australian system can 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 pick a player young, find they're not quite ready, but yeah. there's a there's a system for them to, to go back into. And I, I think that I mean England have that to a degree. India, we know there's issues with their domestic structure, both pandemic related, but perhaps some slightly more structural ones. But it doesn't mean that if you come into Australia and don't succeed straight away, and a lot of them do, that there's nowhere to go back. Tali McGraw's gone back to WNCL, um, WBBL. She went over and played some cricket in England a few winters ago. She's almost the perfect example of a player who had a taste of it, wasn't quite ready, but is now coming back mid-20s. And as you said, Alex, looks a ready-made international cricketer now. And we'll turn to the India players now. We'll just start with a few names I think have stood out to all of us covering these three matches. There's Yastik Abhatia, who's, who's batting the top top order. Meghna Singh, who's impressed with her swing bowling. And Enrique Ghosh, who's come in as the wicketkeeper batter and has really added some punch to the middle order. Um, uh, Anesha, would that be a fair assessment of those three players has been particularly taking their chance well so far? That is indeed a fair assessment, Nasha, because you've got to bear in mind the fact that the Indian spinners are no longer as effective or potent as they've been known uh, on the international circuit for more than half a decade now. Ever since the start of this year, you know, they played the home series in Lucknow in India and then went uh, on to tour England and now the Australia tour. None of their spinners have really put their hand up and taken the responsibility to get them important breakthroughs or bowl tight and disciplined spells. So keeping that in mind and also the fact that Ramesh Vavar, ahead of the Australia tour, had mentioned that keeping in mind India's long-term plans, they have to find pace bowlers who can support Julan Goswami and lessen her workload. Julan Goswami, after all, is just a little over a month shy of 39. So you've got to understand there are aching limbs, aching shoulders that are really carrying the burden of Indian bowling at the moment. When you look at Meghna Singh's performance through all of those prisms, what stands out in her performance so far from the ODI leg of this tour is the fact that she's able to get healthy swing off the pitch and through the air. Her first delivery in international cricket was by far one of the most threatening deliveries Alisa Healy may have faced from a newbie. She really had no answer. The slips were in place and had she gotten that 
feather of an edge. Alisa Healy would have been the first international wicket. Meghna Singh could have added to her name. Yastika Bhatia resolves a number of issues in this Indian batting lineup that has struggled for consistency, stability. She looks like a solid top order as well as middle order bet because Harmanpreet Kaur was injured. She sat out the entire ODI leg of the series. And Harmanpreet has struggled with consistency ever since that 171 not out in the 2017 World Cup. She has had the occasional 30 plus knocks and a couple of 50s here and there but she's not been the kind of uh, batter that India has looked you know to find to cure their middle order woes. That's where Vyastika is a long-term bet for India and should be backed no matter how she performs in India's next series which is the New Zealand tour just ahead of the World Cup next year. Yastika has to fit into that number three number four slot. I don't really think the likes of Poonam Rao who did not get a game in the ODI leg of the tour and even Jamima Rodericks who had stellar form at the 100 but she sat out so you can understand the kind of competition that Yastika Bhatia is bound to generate within this Indian squad for the next two three years with the ODI World Cup and also the other major events like the T20 World Cup in 2023 and the Commonwealth Games Finally, Richa Ghosh, well, that was a bit of a gamble that stand-in T20I captain and Smriti Mandana took during the South Africa series in India earlier this year because Tanya Bhatia, who has been India's best wicketkeeper, she's been the world's best wicketkeeper ever since she debuted. She's affected the most dismissals, uh, wicketkeeping dismissals in the women's game ahead of even the likes of Alisa Healy or Amy Jones, some of the best keepers we have in international cricket at the moment. Tanya Bhatia has struggled to deliver except that test match where she put on that rare guard partnership with DP Sharma and Sneh Rana in England earlier this year. She's not seen by the management or the selectors as somebody whom India can rely on day in and day out as a wicket-keeping batter option. Enter Richa Ghosh. She did well. She's known for her big hitting skills. She impressed. In the few opportunities she got in Australia last year during the World Cup, she was a concussion substitute for Tanya Bhatia, interestingly, in that World Cup final. Because of her reputation as a lower order pinch hitter of sorts, India gave her that ODI debut in the first game. She did well. She performed well in the warm up as well, stumping Ellis Perry in the warm-up fixture in Brisbane. Richard Ghosh remains a rusty, underprepared wicket-keeping proposition even three matches into her ODI career. Should it only be her batting skills that takes precedence ahead of everything else, India have got to bear in mind that her grooming has to be a more long-term exercise on the part of the Indian selectors and also those who look after her in the domestic setup as well. Just one name that we should touch on before we move on from the, the, the chat specifically on the on the one day series. It's one that's lit up our feedback when we've been on commentary during India's uh, three batting innings. It's the role of, of Matali Raj in, in the one day side. Mm-hmm. I mean, her numbers are, are fantastic as an international cricketer, but there's a lot of debate now around the tempo she bats at. I think it was 16 off. 26 balls in the third game and it almost it more, almost got India into trouble that she probably wasn't a bad time that she swung across the line and missed a, a straight one from Sutherland because India was starting to get themselves in, into a, a bit of ball. I mean, um, what's the feeling back in India, Anesha, about the role of Matali Raj? I mean, she's probably only going to carry on till the, till the World Cup. That's going to be her, her swan song, isn't it? I mean, it still hurts that she couldn't win the World Cup in England, that one you mentioned earlier in the chat. I mean, is it is it one of these things that she's seen as such a great player that you fit her in any way that you can and you just let her play the way she wants to play? Or is it is it something that the team management need to be stronger with her about? Does she need to be stronger with herself about the way she plays? 
as she has said time and again especially because her strike rate has been a focal point in several social media discussions and general critique around her performance as the captain as the foremost batter in the indian lineup she has said that she acknowledges that she has to improve her strike rate however after she won india the third odi in england she said something very pertinent to the way she has marshaled the team for years now she said that look i play a certain way and uh, the team expects me to perform a role Mithali Raj has been forced to drop anchor make sure she bats deep she said that she doesn't pay much heed to any criticism or any chat on social media or elsewhere that's something you've got to like about Mithali Raj as far as belief in one's own confidence goes she's never been a big hitter like a harmanpreet kaur or somebody who can get runs briskly like smriti mandana or somebody as young as ashapali verma hers has been a template of sorts hers has been the role of an accumulator but yes if india are to make good on the target that they've set for themselves in terms of getting 250 runs or more consistently that is what ramesh bawa said was going to be their target on uh, this australia tour as far as the odis are concerned if india are to achieve that goal on a more consistent basis i think vithali raj has to number one understand whether the number 3 position suits her better or the number 4 position i totally like the fact that she let yastika bhatia um, come in at number 3 given the fact that india had done reasonably well in the power play and had gotten a good score thanks to their opening batters she demoted herself i think to number 5 richa ghosh came above her in the third odi it's a good ploy on the part of the management to consider her a bit of a floater on a case by case basis but look Mithali has played a certain way for a big part of her career and it's not going to change overnight. She has said that she won't be changing that overnight, but I'm sure as the captain she recognizes the need for her to up the ante whenever required and she did hit that uh, six over square leg in the third over. <laughs> I who saw that coming? Mithali Raj can hit sixes, mind you. She's not all about those elegant cover drives and you know straight drives along the ground. The short ball has been a bit of an issue with her, as it's been with the rest of the lineup. Uh, we saw the likes of Ellis Perry hit her on the helmet. Shafali Verma herself scored one. So there is room for improvement, as Mithali Raj herself has said. And I'm sure going forward, as the other batters take more responsibility, as other batters gain more consistency, and as they start replicating Mithali Raj's feat like five straight fifties, Mithali Raj will also review her position in the batting order and her nature of stroke play and constructing an innings as well. Before we move on and talk about uh, the Test match, I think it's just worth mentioning the WBBL signings that have happened over the last um, few days because it's an important part in the development of these players to get experience in what is the best uh, women's competition um, in the world at the moment. The Sixers and the Thunder have made some interesting signings. Uh, the, the story you broke months ago, Anesha, about um, Shafali Verma going to the Sixers, that's been confirmed. Um, Shriti Mandanar's off to the Thunder with Deki Sharma. Um, Alex, I'll throw it to you as it's sort of a, as it's a tournament that we see a lot of over here in the summers. I, I, and I think what we've seen over the last few summers is that the strength of the WBBL has improved. You could, I think it's safe to say that there's teams carry fewer players now than they did maybe four or five years ago. How useful will it be? I mean, we've touched on things like India's fielding earlier in this conversation. How useful do you think a tournament like the WBBL will be uh, to these players? more Not just for their batting and their bowling, but things like fitness, athleticism, 
and, and the fielding skills? Oh, enormous, particularly for someone like Shafali Verma. For her to be able to play with Elisa Healy and Elise Perry is going to be massive. She's going to play with some really experienced players. Erin Burns is there, Nicole Bolton at, at uh, the Sydney Sixers, who's also had a long international career and played a lot of cricket around the world. Just lifting the standards and understanding what it takes to be an elite professional cricketer now, nowadays, she just hasn't had that opportunity as a 17-year-old kid. Um, so it's it's going to be great for her. She, she'll be tested, I think, in that environment. They work very, very hard, the Sydney Sixers players, and also over at the Thunder. It'll be an interesting exercise for Deepthi Sharma, someone who hasn't played in the WBBL before, but she obviously did a great job in the 100 just recently in England. Shmini uh, Mandana is obviously a really experienced player and has played in the WBBL uh, twice previously. Uh, and Radiata uh, has been very impressive in T20 international cricket. I think she'll be actually a very, very useful signing for the Sixers as well. They haven't had a left-arm orthodox and it gives them a nice balance to their attack because they've got a lot of right-arm off spinners. So just a great opportunity, Nasher, as you said, just to be able to be immersed in a really competitive environment. They get to play 14 games plus finals, you get that continuity of play. You learn how to play back up, train in between. It'll be a really interesting exercise for all of them, particularly those that haven't been here before. And I think they'll learn a great deal. I think it'll be great for someone like Shivali Verma. I think her game as, a, as an all-round package will improve vastly by just being in that Sixers environment. I'll, I'll quickly here. Yeah, go um, on in, actually, yeah. The fact that... The BCCI has not yet announced anything remotely similar to a Women's T20 Challenge this year. And we are already nearing October. There is no Women's T20 Challenge likely to happen from what I understand this year. So participation in the WBBL is perhaps their best option at the moment. Though there is also the option of the Indian players. Well, let's put it this way. There was also the option of the Indian players returning to India and participating in the 50-over domestic competition, which kicks off next month. There is a bit of a chatter around the Indian selection circles as to whether the BCCI should have let these players who are going to play an ODI World Cup in less than six months' time go and play in a T20 competition or whether they should have been asked to participate in the domestic 50-over competition that begins here in India in a month's time. It's debatable, but the BCCI has made their call. The NOCs have been sent out there to see it. And of course, India's largest contingent was single season of the WBBL. Well, that's interesting. And I think we're going to see some more players sign over the next few days as well. So there could be more Indians staying in Australia from this squad than heading home after the series ends next month. Uh, let's turn our attention to the test match now. It starts on Thursday at Metricon Stadium. It was meant to be at the Wacker because of all the covid Rubbish that we're all having to still live with. It's now up in Queensland, which brings quite a few unknowns. It's also the day-night element, of course. Pink ball test match will be India's second test of the year. Australia's first since 2019. The first between these two teams since 2006, when they met in Adelaide. And I think a sign worth mentioning, a sign of their remarkable longevity, that Mataldi Raj and Julan Goswami both played in that 2006 Adelaide test match. So, I mean, just a, another plaudit to how how long and successful their careers have been that they're now back in Australia with the chance to play another test match. From Australia's point of view, heading into the game, there are a few, in it's fair to say there's a few injury concerns. Um, I think I've got the full list here. We've got Rachel Haynes and Beth Mooney both went off with hamstring injuries in the last ODI, although 
Beth Mooney's was hamstring awareness and quite what that means is anybody's guess. I think it, I think it means she has a hamstring, but anyway, we'll see how she pulls up. Sophie Molyneux got a ball in the face, a really nasty delivery that bounced from the pitch. Amazingly came back on and bowled her death overs. Um, in Vic McCosker and Anel Cumble coming to mind when uh, Sophie Molyneux was strapped up there on the outfield yesterday. Huge effort from her. Georgia Wareham's got a quad strain she picked up in the second match. She sounds doubtful for the test match. We know that Taylor Valemic won't be considered until the T20s at least. We know that Jess Jonathan's out of the entire series. Megan Shute, obviously, again, having just had her first baby, is not is not here either. Nicola Carey's even had a few injuries leading into this tour. So it's a long list. It's a good job Australia have got an 18-player squad. Um, but Alex, I mean, if, if we assume, say, that the batters, say Haynes and Mooney are OK, and you have your your main batters, it's probably fair to say, isn't it, the top six? And I'm, I'm putting Ash Gardner at six in that that probably picks itself. And then the bigger questions are going to be the formulation of the bowling attack. Yeah, that'd be fair. And the challenge in the women's game is the ability to take 20 wickets. We haven't really seen it in many women's test matches over the course of the last 10 years. We obviously haven't got a big sample size clearly, but even this year in England where they, you know, England were on top in that game, but weren't able to close the deal, weren't able to take 20 wickets. The ability to take 20 wickets is the key wing test matches. We know that from the men's game. So the challenge is picking a, a, an attack that can produce 20 wickets. And for Australia, they've got plenty of options, but they've got some inexperienced fast bowlers who haven't played in long-form cricket. And that's the other challenge that all of the women have, apart from the experienced ones who've played test matches before. And, and even on the Indian side, the likes of uh, Julian Goswami, and uh, Mitali Raj, particularly from a bowling perspective, they haven't played in long-form cricket. They haven't grown up on long-form cricket like the men do in India and the men do in Australia. So that's the big issue. And for Australia, they need spin options. And you mentioned Georgia Wareham's got a, a quad injury and no Jess Jonathan. Now, Jess Jonathan's bowled uh, 21 overs, 31 overs and 23 overs in Australia's last three test bowling innings. Sophie Molyneux bowled 37 overs in the test match and tortured a couple of years ago and took fourth And Amanda Jade Wellington in the day-night test in, in 2017 bowled 21 overs in the first innings and 36 overs in the second innings. And uh, Anesha will be able to tell us a little bit more about the Indian attack, but they relied heavily on spin in their test match at Bristol. Spin plays a big part. Even though it's a pink ball game, the women's game is different to the men's game. We don't quite know what the surface is going to be. But they don't have the pace to blast teams out like in the men's game. They, the attacks, as we've seen in the ODIs, focus heavily on accuracy, um, attacking the stumps, and the spinners play a huge role in that, just churning through overs and building pressure through keeping the run scoring down. And for Australia, without Jonathan there and with question marks over Wareham, they haven't got a lot of options. Molyneux with a busted... Lip, we sure saw how brave she was the other day. She'll have to do a lot of bowling. And then Ash Garner is going to be relied upon. And then they've got a choice as to whether they bring in a Molly Strano or whether they make an emergency phone call to Amanda J. Wellington, who is in South Australia. So it'd be really interesting to see how they balance that attack with Perry, who's struggling a little bit with the new ball, particularly in terms of her control and whether or not they gamble on a Brown or a Stella Campbell, who haven't played a lot of cricket, have never, ever experienced the test match where they have to back up bowling spells of six and then five and then six. And it's a really, really tough ask and a really, really tough task for Matthew Mott and his selection team to work out what they're going to do. 
from a selfish point of view, I really get, I really hope they go with a Darcy Brown, Stella Campbell mm. uh, double header with that new ball. I think that could be some fantastic viewing, particularly in the sessions under lights, which we'll, we'll come on to in a moment. But Anesha, I just want to throw to you about um, the India um, lineup and some of the big decisions they might have to make about how about how they structure their side. I mean, as Alex touched on, is it on his answer there that, that they relied heavily on spin in England, but they picked two off spinners for that game. You had Snay Rana and you had Deputy Sharma. Um, are they going to need to consider, I mean, they're both useful for their batting, but are they going to need to consider a spinner that turns it the other way? And who who are their best, who are their best options um, to support Goswami in the scene department? Absolutely spot on, Nasha. The one trick that they missed in that standalone test in England was not picking Rajeshwari Gaikwad because she did not tour. She was out with injury, a knee injury, and also she had suffered from a bout of COVID. Not having a left-arm spinner really sort of pegged them back. When you compare their bowling attack to England's, which had Sophie Eccleston sort of running through the Indian top and middle orders, Rajeshwari Gaikwad picks herself, in my opinion, in this test match lineup. It is a no-brainer, to be honest. The larger concern would be around where does Harmanpreet Kaur slot back in? We know that she has been batting in the nets in Makai. We saw visuals of her having a bit of a hit in the nets. Smriti Mandana posted a picture of Jhulam Goswami with Harmanpreet Kaur perched on her shoulder. So it looks like Harmanpreet is in good spirits, is probably fit. But whom does she replace in that top order, middle order? Yastika Bhatia? I don't think so. Yastika Bhatia should be a definite inclusion in this test match. Simply going by how she's performed, taken on the short balls, really batted with a lot of composure, a lot of responsibility. As far as Sne Rana and Deepti Sharma are concerned, well, you cannot forget that rare guard partnership that they put on in the second innings in Bristol for that one-off test against England. They are indispensable to not just the test lineup now, to also India's ODI plans going into the World Cup March, April 2022. The pace bowling department, Shikha Pandey could probably come in unless the team management thinks that they should back Vastrakar, the all-rounder. Shikha was pretty effective in England, though her contributions with the bat do not quite stand out if you look at her career as the all-rounder she's expected to be, but she's not quite delivered on that front. Shikha Pandey is an experienced pacer in their rank. She might just make that starting 11 for the pink ball test, but I do think they are picking Julian Goswami, again, a no-brainer, and Meghna Singh. One of the other aspects that they'll have to make a decision on, and it should actually be a relatively straightforward decision, and that's uh, the inclusion of Tanya Bhatia as the wicketkeeper. Richard Ghosh struggled with the gloves in the ODIs. She's a good pinch-hitter, but you have to have somebody responsible who's really gone through such situations and has experience of the highest level and against quality opposition. So I see Tanya Bhatia making her comeback into the lineup, and she had also played the crucial knock in the England test, so it would be unfair if she's left out, really. And particularly with the day-night element and the amount the pink ball can do under light, you want your best wicketkeeper, I think, for the test match. So that would seem to point in Tanya Batia's favour as well. Alex, I just want to come back to you about the day-night element of this test match. It's the second one in women's test cricket history. We also get to see a lot here in Australia, the men playing day-night test cricket, one, sometimes two in a season. There's the added tactical element of, of making sure you're bowling, if you can, under those in those night sessions. Do you think that will be a fascinating part of this test match to see whether either team can sort of engineer the test match so they get a decent bowl under lights? 
I think it will. Again, I, 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 do, I do have a caution or a caveat to that in that the women's game is played very, very differently to the men's game. And the pink ball test that we saw at North Sydney Oval was on a really flat wicket. Um, there wasn't a lot of change in terms of conditions under lights. The interesting part about the Gold Coast is it's a drop-in surface. They do like to keep a really uh, heavy covering of grass on it, which we've seen in the BBL and also in the, the very few limited overs internationals that we've seen. So there should be some spring and some bounce in it. And we did see the ball swing under lights in Mackay. And there's that very heavy atmosphere in Queensland. It is a, a humid time of year up there. The other element that needs to be thought through is how the dew comes in because it played a massive factor in that day-night one-day international on Friday. The Indian seamers and their spinners could not hold the ball and you can't just simply replace the ball in the test match. So it's something that both teams are going to have to be very wary of and maybe in the lead-up, certainly training in the twilight period and at night, they're going to have to have a look at what the dew factor is and how much that comes in and how that's going to play a part in when they want to bowl and when they don't. But, but clearly, obviously, batting under lights with a pink ball for the women not really used to playing with the pink ball full stop is the biggest challenge. And I think for the Australian top quarter, they, they should really be wary here because uh, Julian Goswami and Meghna Singh bowled beautifully with the new ball in Mackay. They swung it. They threatened the outside edges of the top order of the Australian players. So they're going to have a really, really big test um, coming up this week. And, uh, it will be fascinating to see uh, just how both sides will go about it. But I think I, I, I still have a feeling in the back of my mind that both sides are going to rely heavily on spin through the middle overs. Uh, it's just the way that the women's game is played. You attack the stumps, set very straight fields, constrict the scoring, and, and really it's a game of patience. And test cricket's a game of patience anyway. It doesn't matter where you play it or when you play it. Um, so... It will be an interesting game. I'm really looking forward to it. A few days ago, before the one-day series, uh, Matthew Mott did a press conference and said that um, Australia's game plan for the Test match was going to be to play one-day cricket for four yeah. days. So if that if it lives up to that, we should be in for a heck of a game because the, the last couple of one-days have been exciting. Australia play a very play a very expressive brand of one-day cricket. So it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, you can say that and then be interesting to see how players can react to that in the pressure situation in the middle. Anesha, I just want to come back to you for a final um, question, if I can. In India, if you want to call an advantage, I've played a test match this year, albeit a few months ago now. Um, they fought back very well to take the draw in that game, as you've mentioned previously. What lessons do you think they'll will they take from that experience and into this match, albeit I know that was a day game? Um, how do you think they'll, what learnings do you think they'll take um, into this test match? Firstly, I think their openers are going to take a lot of heart from their performance in that England test because uh, both of them had gotten 50. Shafali Burma nearly got a century. So for somebody as young as her to have shown the kind of solidity in technique, my God, that just stood out and really took everybody by surprise. India would expect her to replicate exactly that and it would be great if she goes on to convert that into a three-digit score this time around. Smithy Mandana, again, she made that 86 in the ODI a day after her skipper wanted her to really contribute as an experienced player. She would need to bring all of that experience of over 140 international caps into this test match, especially because, let me make it very clear, from all the conversations I've had with uh, the India probables, both capped and uncapped, who were part of the Bengaluru camp in August, India did not even have a single session with the pink wall. So they do not really know what the pink wall how it's going to behave and how much time do they have 
after the completion of the ODI series. So it ended on Sunday. Do they have a grand total of three days to acclimatize to the shenanigans of a ping ball? My God, that's going to be a challenge, right? As Alex rightly mentioned, that if the white wall felt like a bar of soap in dewy conditions, I wonder what the pink ball is going to feel like in the hands of a Meghna saying the spinners. That is something that will probably, you know, be at the back of their minds through the entire course of four days. As an Indian journalist who's followed that England test match and who's also going to be doing some work with her Australian colleagues in Nasher and Alex, let me ask you this. I'm sure our listeners from England are going to enjoy this because the ECB had copped a fair bit of criticism when they used a used pitch for that uh, one-off test. What is it going to be like uh, at the Metricon Stadium? Well, it'll, it'll be a brand new pitch because they haven't played any cricket there for a while. So I can tell you that much for, for one thing. There won't be any used um, used pitches for this test match. It is a big unknown factor, though. I thought there might have been an Australia A game there a few years ago, but I think that was a one-day. It was a one-day game. It was a one-day. Uh, yeah. Because that was... didn't um, Isn't that where Will Pekoski gave himself one of his concussions by falling, yeah. on, the, um, by falling on the square? It was, Nasher. And, and the reason he did is because it's a drop-in surface. So it's the same as uh, the Opus Stadium in Perth, Perth Stadium and the MCG. And, and the way they put the, the surfaces in there, there's not a big square. They actually drop in just a couple of surfaces as standalone. So they're very similar to the drop-ins in New Zealand. And so it's actually just soft outfield grass on the edge of the square. And he got his bat stuck in and, and actually tumbled over and, and knocked himself out. But that's the one unknown factor about this is a drop-in surface, the way they mesh it together, there's been a little bit of inconsistency when they played BBL games there. There's been some really, really high-scoring games there. There was a game between the Stars and the Sixers last year, which was an incredible game of cricket featuring an, an amazing innings from Nicholas Puran. But um, we just don't know what this surface is going to be like. It, it, it could have seam and bounce. It could get a little bit lower. It could be inconsistent. It could be two-paced. Uh, so that's a huge challenge. And as Anesha pointed out, I mean, for the India girls not to have faced the pink ball, uh, they've got three days and they probably had a rest day today. So they've, they've got very little time to practice facing the pink ball in a twilight period, which is incredibly difficult for those who've done a lot of it. Um, and, and there's been even, um, well, we heard Brad Hodge talking about the fact that he's colourblind, that there might be batsmen in that in that India uh, uh, batters, sorry, I should say, in that India side, who uh, who have sight issues with the pink ball, having not experienced it before. You'd hate to go into a test match 24 hours out going, well, I can't see the seam here. I don't know what I'm looking at. That That's a big, big ask. Well, I think it's going to be a fascinating few days, um, however it unfolds um, on the Gold Coast. I'm going to wrap this chat up there for now. It's been a pleasure to have Alex and Inesha. We'll be back after the test match to see whether anything that we've talked about over the last half an hour or so has come true or whether it was all nonsense we will find <laughs> out it, we will find out in just over a week but for now from myself Andrew McGlash and from Alex Malcolm and from Anesha Gosh this has been Stump Mike on ESPN Crickinfo.com <laughs>